This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, May 8th, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Henry Martin drops by again today to talk with us about his campaign for the 6th Congressional District in Missouri. We talked with Henry last November, and today we'll catch up on his campaign to see how things are going. But first, let me ask you a question. Should corporations have the same rights as people? Should money spent in elections equal free speech and drown out the political voices of people who don't have lots of money? Well, the Supreme Court apparently thinks so, but the overwhelming majority of people don't. Join Greg Coleridge, the national co-director of Move to Amend. Move to Amend is a coalition organizing to pass a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. Find out how to become part of this movement to create a real democracy, not just for we the people, but for all the people. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. So today we're talking with Henry Martin, Democratic Congressional Candidate for the 6th District in Missouri. The 6th District covers the northern top of Missouri, spanning east to west, bordered by Illinois on the east side, the state of Iowa up north, and Nebraska and Kansas out west. And most of this district is rural, with various small towns and communities sprinkled throughout the heartland. The district does contain some parts of the metro Kansas City area, but for the most part it is truly Midwestern heartland. Henry is a veteran of the United States Army. He fought as part of the Desert Shield and Desert Storm operations. Before returning from combat duty, he enlisted in the Missouri National Guard and worked directly with Missourians impacted by the flood of 93. And that experience taught him about the importance of infrastructure and how it is an integral part of stability and prosperity for everyone. After leaving the Guard, he taught high school math and coached school sports. Henry is not a newcomer to politics. Back in 2020, he ran in the Democratic Party for the 6th Congressional District, but lost out to Dr. Gina Ross. In 2018, he won the Democratic primary, but lost out in the general election to the Republican incumbent. And this particular Republican incumbent, by the way, uh, has consistently held that post since the year 2000. So, Henry, thanks for joining us today again at Democracy on the Move, and welcome to the program. Uh, thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Uh, it's always a pleasure to get back and talk with uh, talk with you because, hey, we're talking about the things that matter. Yeah, it's, this is really informative for me. And we had talked uh, the last November, let me see, it was last November 7th, I think, was the podcast that we released when you, when you talked with us before. And that was exactly one year and one day away from the general election. And here we are now. It's early May. And we have about three months to the primary and six months to the general election. So time is getting short. And uh, so when we talked before, we talked about the issues of the day as well as your political philosophy. But, you know, a lot has happened since then. Uh, Russia is in a hot war with Ukraine. Inflation is the highest it's been in 40 years. Uh, It looks indeed like the Supreme Court is about to overturn Roe v. Wade. And uh, though the January 6th commission continues its work, the nation grows increasingly frustrated when subpoenas from congressional investigations are ignored with impunity. And it seems like the big players in this drama have yet to be called to the carpet. 
So there's a lot to unpack, but uh, let's first start with um, how are you doing these days and how's your campaign going? Well, Dan, I, I'm actually uh, doing pretty good. Uh, the campaign is in, is in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. Our first quarter earnings have us uh, um, far ahead of any campaign other than Kate Barnes, well, any campaign since Kate Barnes on the Democratic side as far as fundraising at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have more than 700 individual donations to the campaign. Uh, we are looking to do something that, well, uh, hasn't been done. We're, we're trying, we're getting ourselves together. Uh, we want to have a really strong marketing campaign this summer, uh, so that we can really get the word out, uh, about, uh, my campaign, mm-hmm. uh, as we're, we're looking at, at great polling data. Um, I know, I know that the, uh, well, I'll, I'll just call them what everybody else calls them, the, the coastal elites, if you will, mm-hmm. and the media is basically writing off almost every every race in the Midwest that they deem as quote unquote unwinnable. Yeah. Um, they they are they will ignore us. They ignore phone calls. They ignore requests for help, and so on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. And what what's happened is Democrats have done that so long. Now they're behind. Now we're behind the eight ball. I mean, right. here here we are on the precipice of having Roe v. Wade struck down. Right. Uh, who knows what's going to get struck down after Roe v. Wade? Because it's clear that uh, that set precedent doesn't matter. Right. Uh, if they can if they can find an interpretation of the Constitution that will allow them uh, to strike down uh, anything else, they'll do it. Yeah. Um, I I think uh, it's it's imperative in this midterm that we galvanize Democrats. Uh, we galvanize uh, the uh, middle of the road voters. The mm-hmm. The, uh, independence, un, un, yeah. independence, and all those. Yeah. I think I think it's we need to galvanize those people and give them candidates that are worth a doggone. We need to get we need to get out here and invest in these races. Yeah. So we we continue. I I, I understand that here in Missouri, the Democratic Party believes that they can take Ann Wagner's seat because it's it's a teetering seat. Yeah. But they there are so many races that Democrats don't even bother to invest in like my own, uh, mm-hmm. that, um, if a candidate could mount a significant offensive, they can't because they don't have, they don't have the resources. Yeah. Uh, so like any other candidate, I'm spending 20 to 30 hours a week on the phone, mm-hmm. uh, just, just as is expected. So, yeah. uh, we have to be able to put up, we have to be able to put up a fight. Yeah. Uh, it is, it is clear that our Republican colleagues do not have a governing agenda and, with that, uh, they go to they go to their tried and true playbook. Uh, they they play towards people's uh, fears, their mm-hmm. anger, their anxiety, uh, and they they fight the culture wars. Yeah. It's the reason why abortion stays front and center every election cycle. Uh, then then you hear about the crazy bills that they propose in state houses, which. Uh, I, what was it? 13 states have trigger laws that yeah. if Roe v. Wade is overturned, including Missouri, uh, they, yeah. imme- they immediately yeah. go in and there's a six week ban or, or yeah, six week ban on abortions. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's tragic that we're, that we're taking away people's right rights, yeah. just right in our faces. Um, I made a post today on Facebook and, and basically, um, I, I spoke about the, uh, while I don't, uh, I don't condone the taking away of anybody's rights over anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do, I do recognize 
the need for government sometimes to regulate people's rights right. uh, for the good of the body public. It, it, and it's nothing personal. And uh, we, we really have an answer. We, we really need to answer some questions about who we're becoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we are we this nation that's always looking to retaliate against people we don't agree with? And if if we're gonna if we're gonna censor people and we're gonna we're gonna decide that people can't do this or they can't say this or you can't read that book, you know, who who gets to decide that? Right. At what point at what point do we let bygones be bygones? And we grow up as a nation and we talk about these issues that are difficult to talk about. You know, I, I, I at the end of my my uh, um, post, mm-hmm. I found the quote by Pastor Marvin Niemüller from uh, in Germany uh, in, in uh, when Hitler came. And, and it was first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Mm-hmm. And that is a problem. And yeah. I think that's what, and, and people were sleeping at the wheel and we're not taking the time it's going to take to say, Hey, there's something wrong with this. When we're allowing people to come in and ban books, burn books, uh, they people talk about free speech, but they only want to talk about free speech as long as they agree with it. Yeah. yeah. Look, uncomfortable speech is what it is. You know, we just need to have conversations about what, what's comfortable and what's not. Yeah. I think in a polite society that we should be able to sit down and have these conversations and not not worry about who's right and who's wrong. We yeah. should be able to have these conversations. You hit upon an interesting thing there too. You, you, one of the things you said was who gets to make those decisions, and you were referring to um, <clears throat> decisions about freedoms and rights, and and uh, uh, I believe you also mentioned the fact that there are some uh, legislatures out there that want to regulate what can be read and what can't be read in schools, and that has been my biggest uh, issue with this recent issue with the DeSantis versus Disney is not so much that these books themselves were, I, I would have to agree, a lot of them were inappropriate for the age group that they were being taught, but the fact that this is being handled at the government, at, at the legislative level, at the, in this case, the Florida state legislative level, where they're beginning to dictate these policies now to the schools, and I think that's a bad precedent because we already have a system set up for this. We have, it's called your local school board. And that's where the decisions about you know <laughs> about the types of materials that your that your kids w- should be studying and and the parents can meet with teachers and they can come to an agreement as to what's done, but now the uh, you know the heavy hand of government which is counterintuitive or uh, counter uh, it, it's uh, what am I trying to say here it conflicts with what the tr- traditional Republicans wanted to do which was limit the size of government. But now, you know, that they're they're in control, that it's almost like the power is getting to their head and say, OK, now we're going to regulate everything from the top down. And that becomes very much autocratic, in my opinion. Excellent point. We uh, we were we're literally watching the transformation of the Republican Party away from that local government is the best government. Mm-hmm. They're transitioning away from that. And they're, they're, they, they accuse Democrats of trying for a top-down model when that's not the case at all. 
Um, I, I, and I'm going to, I'm going to use the affordable care act as an excellent example mm -hmm. because the Democrats easily could have required Medicaid expansion across the country. If Democrats truly believed in a top-down model, the Democrats allowed states to, to opt in for Medicaid expansion so their voters could choose or their legislatures could choose based on either the savings the state was going to see or the, the will of the people. Well, mm -hmm. in, in Missouri, we chose not to do Medicaid expansion initially, and Medicaid expansion is now a constitutional amendment that was brought by uh, initiative petition by the people of the state of Missouri. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an example of allowing the state to make a decision, but they don't, they're, they're not even, they don't even care what the people say. They've decided that they know better than the people of the state of Missouri. Yeah. So they don't feel that it's in the best interest of the state of Missouri yeah. to do Medicaid expansion. And so there's more and more control taken away. Yeah. Uh, well, more and more influence thrown around uh, because they're not allowing these school boards. Um, I can I can use the examples. Uh, uh, one candidate here in the state of Missouri is using LGBTQ, uh, uh, a, a transgender swimmer uh, is the focus of uh, many commercials by this candidate. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the issue that I have is this, we have a governing body for uh, athletics here in the state of Missouri. It's the Missouri State High School Activities Association. Yeah. And I can assure you that the Activities Association is already considering all, all possible outcomes and ramifications from transgender athletes. Right. Um, so I, I promise you that, that uh, our Activities Association is proactive in their governance of sports here mm -hmm. in the state of Missouri. And they make, they make it clear. And every year they revisit these things. There is no need. There's no need for the state to weigh in. There's no need for the local government to weigh in because we do have governing bodies that handle these situations. Yeah. They, again, it's just a, it's a yet another example of making something an issue. That's really a non-issue. Well, it's also an example of, of autocracy and power, you know, or, or autocracy in, in the making. And it, it does start up a slippery slope, too. You were talking about our, the state legislature there uh, initially when you talked about Medicaid expansion and the, and the initiative process in Missouri, which basically uh, amended the Constitution to put Medicaid in, uh, the yep. state legislature has, has tried again and again to back this out. <clears throat> as if they know you know better for what the people want, and and you talk about sports as well. I, I always have like this little joke. I says you know once the once the state legislature gets involved in legislating sports, you're going to see pretty soon uh, baseball games here in, in uh, around the country. Uh, they're going to just fire all the umpires and, and put legislators in there to call balls and strikes. You know th it's it's getting to the point where you you yeah. can't even enjoy America's you know America's pastime yeah. of of sports without getting politics involved in it. So that's a really yeah, dangerous uh, turn of events. We're in a, we're in a sad state of affairs. And I, and I, and I only, my only hope is that uh, I can, I can uh, win enough voters to let's begin some change. Mm -hmm. um, we, um, 
unfortunately, Mr. Graves is a well-intended human being. I'm sure, I'm sure uh, there are a lot of people that, that enjoy him, that, that believe he's well-intentioned. But at this point, he's part of the problem. Uh, and we, we've got to, we've got to change who we're, who we're sending to Washington. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I know people talk, I, I, I was asked a question, uh, ballot of PD asked the question what are my thoughts on term limits? Mm-hmm. And, uh, this is, this is one area where I will tell you that I agree 100% with Chuck Grassley. The term limit is the next election. Mm-hmm. If the people of the United States really wanted term limits, Mm-hmm. then their voting pattern would show that they want term limits because you would see a, a regular changing of the guard. Right. Instead, you, you see Congress at a 90 plus percent incumbency rate. While at the same time, you see people favoring term limits at 80 percent. Those numbers should be inversely proportionate. Mm-hmm. If, if we really did, believe so you would have the 80 percent desire for term limits and you would have an incumbency rate closer to about 50 percent 40 percent yeah um gerrymandering has made it more and more difficult to send people home because gerrymandering serves only a couple of purposes one of those purposes is to guarantee a seat for an individual for as long as they want it right the second thing is to suppress the vote. Yeah. And the third thing that happens once the vote has been suppressed, you end up not ha- not even having candidates running for seats because they don't want to get beaten. Nobody wants to go out there and just get trounced all over in an election. You put your name on a ballot and you you lose by a two-thirds margin and people look at you like you didn't even know what you were doing. Yeah. Well, so what is your problem? There's also this mentality, though, of of the duopoly, right? So, if if an independent or someone from a third party, say, you know, the libertarians or the greens or whatever, put their name on the ballot, everybody accuses them immediately of stealing votes, and that's the mentality that uh, gerrymandering fosters because yep. there's this sense that votes are owned and they're not owned. So, you know, if you say you're stealing a vote, that means it's someone else owns it. No, you're not stealing a vote. You're just, you're voting your conscience. So, um, yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. Let's, let's talk about something here. Uh, this is a really big thing. We'll get to Roe v. Wade shortly because I think that's a really big thing to talk about. But I think what was uh-huh. really big even before Roe v. Wade was inflation. And I have to admit initially that economics was never my strong suit, although I do remember uh-huh. some things from my Econ 101 class in college. And uh-huh. um, so insofar as inflation goes, there are a couple of reasons I can see for it. First of all, a lot of COVID relief money went into circulation, and it yep. was intended to help bridge the gap for those who were having a difficult time remaining employed during the pandemic. But let's face it giving everyone these stimulus checks, regardless of employment status, uh, put a lot of cash in the circulation and a lot of cash in the circulation is going to drive up demand. Uh, on the other hand, the supply chain has experienced pandemic induced slowdowns from manufacturing and distribution. So when mm-hmm. you have increased demand and decreased supply, prices get squeezed in the middle and they go up and, and they go way up. And this is not even to mention the fact that energy companies are reaping record profits while claiming shortages which really further exacerbates the inflation. So now if we were to assign blame, there's plenty to go around, but certainly 
Here's the problem. There's a Democrat in the White House and a majority of Democrats in both houses of Congress. They're going to take the arrows simply because they're the ones that are there. They're in charge. They have the bullseyes on their backs. But Uh to some degree, their solution seems to be, in some sense, to put more money in circulation in the form of this Build Back Better Act. And I haven't really made up my mind whether I agree with it or disagree with it personally, but this act has become the target of a lot of conservatives that say it will further drive up inflation. So, like I say, economics is not my strong suit, but it does seem from a layman's perspective that not enough is being done to get control of this beast that we call inflation. And here you are, you know, running for Congress against a Republican incumbent, and uh, he has his sights of his blamethrower machine square on you at this point. So what's your plan to get past this barrier that we call inflation? First of all, I love that metaphor, the blamethrower. That is excellent. I, I'll have to use that sometime. <laughs> that, that is an excellent metaphor. Well, it, it, it's funny. And uh, this, this is the part that really starts to, starts to make you scratch your head. If you look at it, you know, it's when our corporations need bailouts, mm-hmm. when our corporations need bailouts, there's always money for that. Mm-hmm. And we never see inflation on the backside of it. Right. When we issue tax cuts to the very wealthy and corporations, there's always money and we never see inflation. Mm-hmm. So the question that I have as a consumer is how much of these increased prices is artificial? And how much of it is really from the supply chain issue? Mm-hmm. You yourself just pointed out that energy companies are making record profits right now. Yeah. And so if energy companies are making record profits right now, why? Is there is their supply chain really broken? I understand that there are a handful of things that go into uh, uh, the cost of a gallon of gas. Mm-hmm. There's the basic supply and demand, but then you have the speculation piece. Right. That's going to happen. Then you have the greed piece. And so there's, there's only, I wonder how much of it is real and how much of it is manufactured on B and basically they, they look for reasons to increase prices. Um, I saw a great article about gas prices. It talked about rockets and feathers. Mm -hmm. That was, that was the metaphor they used rockets and feathers. So when there, when there's a presumed um, disruption in the supply chain for, for gasoline price shoots up and it shoots up uh, sometimes not directly in proportion, but uh, uh, exponentially in proportion Mm -hmm to the current demand state and the current supply state. Right. But then when it, but then as the price of a uh, barrel of crude goes down, the price of your gas does not come down at that same rate. Mm-hmm. So if we're paying, if they were paying $50 for a barrel, of, if they were paying $50 for a barrel of crude and when, when at that time we were we were spending two dollars and fifty cents per gallon, for example, mm-hmm. I'm just throwing these numbers out here. These no, aren't exact. Pretty these close. Aren't exact. Yeah. Yeah. So if they were paying fifty dollars a barrel for for a fifty dollars for for a barrel of, barrel of oil, and we were paying two dollars and fifty cents a gallon for gasoline, mm-hmm. 
And then when the price shot up to above a hundred dollars a barrel, we're paying four dollars for right. a barrel of gas. But then it, re- it rolled back to fifty around fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. Why are we still paying near four dollars per gallon of gas? Right. That's the question. You know, I, I was on a podcast with some gentlemen uh, from the oil and gas I- I- industry, and I can tell you that yes, the United States does need to make significant investments in uh, renewables. We do. Yeah. It's time yeah. uh, because we we need to wean off of, of fossil fuels, um, and in in order to do so, you know, we're we're talking about creating jobs that that aren't here today. Right. They're not here today. So. 10, 20 years from now, they're going to be, there's going to be new jobs in energy production that don't exist today. Yeah. Um, some of our energy companies are going to need to transition from a production model to a service model mm-hmm. uh, because that's the way they'll survive. Because if Build Back Better does go through, that is a significant investment in wind and solar power. Yeah. So, the best people capable of servicing that situation at that point now become those very same energy companies that are having to buy tons and tons of coal ton and uh, nuclear material and tons and tons of natural gas. Well, now if they transition over to a service uh, model, for example, now their, their trucks go out on trouble calls when people are having trouble at their home mm-hmm. and they can scale back production they don't have to use as much of the fossil fuel, but that's just an example. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I understand that there's resistance to change, you know, and conservatism by definition is resisting change in favor of traditions. Yeah. So I get, I get all that. You want to preserve what's here, but progressivism means that we're looking at the future and we're preparing for a future. And is it, is it the, is it, the United in the United States best interest to continue holding on to what has always been done and not embrace the future. I think at, at, at each time in history where the United States has embraced the future. Yes, you've seen the death of industry, but you've seen the rise of other industries at the same time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure stagecoach companies were pretty pissed off when the railroad was finished. Yeah, they didn't last long after the railroad got done. Yeah. So, and, and that's just an example. Um, well, so, you, you can you can say just about anything. I mean, in, in mm-hmm. from my observation is that the big strength of the United States, and we can get into education too in this issue, because has it has always been using science and technology to become innovators in this country, yep. and we have innovated. Exactly. Uh, you know, we've invented so many things here, and not everything was invented here, but a lot of the big things were invented here. The big industries. And uh, it seems counterproductive at this point. I think if I'm guessing, if I'm guessing correctly, what you're saying here, it's counterproductive to just hang on to that because right. there's new stuff out there that if we don't get it, China's going to get it, or some other country's going to get it and be the innovators and be the the uh, the be at the top of the world economically for that. And so I think, I, and in that note, I think one of the goals of Build Back Better is to start making those investments again with taxpayer dollars in the innovation in the American people. Mm-hmm. Because there's no better producer of mass anything than the American worker. 
<laughs> yeah. The the innovations that have happened here in the United States are 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 second to none. Yeah. But we've slowed in that process because we haven't made those investments. So now you don't see you don't see those innovations anymore because uh, the only ones that get the the only ones that get the funding are the ones that are that are that have the new and the 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 shiny mm -hmm. the shiny thing. And so we're in in some cases we're sacrificing true science for what they are calling junk science these days. Somebody makes something happen one time. And they get the funding, but they can never repeat the experiment because they 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 weren't they no. they didn't it was an it was a fluke. No. Whereas you got somebody else that's got a long term project that has produced results, but we that we would have continued to fund until it got to its end that we're not funding anymore because they're not showing they don't have the shiny thing yeah. in this moment, and so. Like I said, I, I kind of, I kind of, I will echo the president on this one. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to bet my money on anything, I'm going to bet my money on the American worker mm -hmm. because that's where you're going to get your best return. Americans are resilient and we do make things happen, but some of these things can't happen in a vacuum. You know, uh, the Build Back Better plan includes uh, investment in, in, in people. No, in people. I mean, no, our country has protected wealth pretty much since its inception. And at no time has our country really, really protected the American worker and the American family. No, I mean, we can just we can look at every turn. Uh, Great Depression, they bailed out. They bailed out corporations. That was the Great Depression, the, the FDR's New Deal was the biggest thing, biggest uh, investment in, in the American worker that, it, that had ever been made. Yeah. You know, labor unions came out of, out of all that, all kinds of innovations that came out of that, that helped the American worker. And that was the last time we made a significant investment in the American worker. And ever since then, we've been pulling back and pulling back and pulling back. And what have we got? Yeah. We've got billionaires racing the space. And meanwhile, we've got housing prices that are soaring through the roof and people can't afford basic housing. Yeah. And yeah. this should not be in America, you know, and, and, uh, we, we look down our, and there are some who look down their nose at people and say, you just should have made better choices. Sometimes it's not about making better choices. Sometimes it's about your circumstances in that moment. Yeah. I don't know somebody's story unless I sit down and talk to them and learn that story. You know, you can you can go by any homeless shelter or go by any homeless encampment and talk to people. And they're like, well, we were doing everything right. And blah, 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 blah. And this hit. Yeah. You know, common thing that hits medical, medical bills. Yeah. Yeah. Medical, medical bills. bills. Yeah. It's one of the top five reasons Americans go bankrupt in the United States. Yeah. And why? For what? Yeah. Why? Why are we holding on? Why are we holding on to our current uh, medical care system? Is it so great that we have that we feel obligated to it that we want to uh, embrace it and say, oh, yeah, this is the greatest thing we ever did. Is yeah. it, you know, that, that's a really hard argument to make. But I think that a lot of the really conservative people do make that precise argument. And in mm -hmm. uh, the only counter argument that, that I mean, their argument is really based upon we don't want to become a socialist nation 
and they throw out that that word, and mm-hmm. then suddenly everybody pulls back and says, "Well, we don't want to be socialist." But on the other hand, like you say, we're it, I thought that was the leading uh, cause of personal bankruptcy was medical bills, and mm-hmm. it it just tells me that things are out of control in in the state of Missouri itself. Rural hospitals have been going offline. Uh, I think we just had two of them out there near Boone County or just north of Boone County. Mm-hmm. I don't know what county yep. that is. Uh, but two of them just went offline there. And that's 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 adding to a lot more that have gone offline. And so what happens when these rural hospitals close down? Uh, boy, oh boy. I mean, if you have, uh, you know, if you come down with diabetes or something and you're in the middle of nowhere in, a, in, in, in uh, you know, some sparsely populated county, you're in trouble. I mean, you, it's, it's well, a long I, drive and you're going you, to pay for it too. Yeah, I could tell you a story from a supporter of mine. She was telling me her story. Uh, she said she had preeclampsia mm-hmm. Ooh, uh, with her pregnancy. Yeah. And uh, if she had been any further away from a hospital, both her and her baby would have died. Yeah. That happens very quickly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's like, wow, these are, these are real issues that are, that are just killing people. You know, when, when a rural hospital closes or they shut down emergency services, a farm accident that could be a minor can become major in minutes. Yeah. Because there are still areas in the sixth district that don't have enhanced nine one one. So they're, they're out, they're out looking for you if there's a problem and so on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just, it, it, I, the question I, that I would have for, for conservatives is what is their plan to see to it? that our rural hospitals don't close what is their plan to make sure that no american family goes broke from the onset of a major illness or injury you can't it's not like i'm sitting around the house oh boy i'm gonna get cancer in five years let me go Mm -hmm. ahead and stock up on cancer uh uh this and cancer insurance and this that and the other you know it's it's as though you're you're forced into markets that you probably can't afford. I mean, I can tell you my own personal story. Um, in uh, to that because we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of the loss of my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2012, uh, my wife had just you know she had just gone back to work, and um, she was was not feeling well, mm-hmm. and so she she had health insurance through her job and. Because she wasn't feeling well, she was having some difficulty at work, staying awake and doing a, doing a doing just just nominal everyday things. She had been hooked up to a halter monitor, so they were monitoring her heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, when she came off the, you know, and and somewhere in there, she lost her job oh, uh, yeah. because they they yeah. cited they cited some issues, and she she was having some health issues, and these these things were legit, and so. We had, I did not know this at the time, and I didn't know that basically because of a change, a significant change like that, where she loses her her insurance, she is immediately uh, uh, eligible for my insurance. Well, I had filed all the paperwork, Mm -hmm. and we were just waiting for the confirmation that we had it for her to get back and, and start getting to the doctor again. Well, she up and died Mm. just suddenly. Mm-hmm. Boom, gone, gone. Mm. And I know that 
I'm not, you know, I'm not a monolith. I'm not, I'm not the only person that something like that has happened to, but had we have, had we have had a single payer system and we've been able to get my wife, the care that she needed, because it was clear that there was something wrong. Mm -hmm. They weren't seeing anything directly with the tests that they were doing, but there was something that was wrong because she was still feeling sick, Mm -hmm. you know, and no family should have to endure that none. Um, so yes, we, you know, and so many families and, you know, and, and I consider myself a person that pays enough attention to the world around me that I, I know what services are available to me and what I can get for this, that, or the other. But when you're, when you're living on a budget and you're living on a pretty tight budget, because, uh, we, we had had, you know, some, some issues with employment before she died. Like I said, she'd been sick. Yeah. Um, wow. when you, when you, when a family goes through that, what do you do? I mean, you feel like your back is against the wall Yeah. and you have, you have to think about all of that before you do anything. And it's, it's not fair to those, not, not fair to an American family, not fair to any family really yeah. around the world. Uh, healthcare should be something that if, if you've got the infrastructure for it, healthcare is provided because it's what it's something people need to survive. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have a, a not quite as tragic story and I really, I really sorry to hear about your loss there that, uh, my son, uh, he was, I think 23 at the time he was in his last year of college, maybe he was 22 and, um, suddenly comes down with Addison's disease. And luckily, because, you know, of, of Obamacare and such, he could still be on my insurance until he was 26. And I don't know if you know what Addison's disease is, but it is it is a fairly rare disease, fairly deadly. Uh, he almost died from it. It took them a long time to figure out what it was that was wrong with him. And it uh, it's easily treatable once you figure out what it is. But uh, we went through that. And now he's out in California. I'm here in Missouri. But fortunately, I could still cover him with my insurance. But uh, that's one of the things that actually got me into, uh, into politics. I was always interested in politics, but it it made me want to do more than just you know, take a passing interest in politics because yep. since then I've met several people such as yourself that have gone through this, that have gone either lost a loved one or almost died themselves because of the difficulty. It's difficult enough just to get diagnosed correctly and get the right treatment. But if you're dealing with having to uh, with with having to figure out what insurance you can get, if any, if you don't have insurance, that's a much bigger problem as well. If you have to deal with all those other issues, it could really threaten your life after a while. And and I would just I would dare say that if I had to deal with those issues on top of what my son was going through, I don't know if he would have made it. Honestly, it's it's yep. it's one of those uh, things that uh, you have so much on your mind you got to deal with. Uh, healthcare should be the last. Whether or not you're covered by healthcare should be the last uh, thought on your mind. You yeah. should have to be yeah. should be able to just focus on the problem. Yep. Far far too yeah. many families have to put off treatment because of uh, their fears about the bill. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my younger brother. <laughs> you know, I listen. I could go on about healthcare for hours because <laughs> it struck my family in ways that that uh, I don't think anybody. I think I don't think people should have to go through this. My younger brother, you, you said about uh, getting the correct diagnosis. Mm-hmm. 
we just lost my younger brother on April 1st. Hmm. My gosh, um, sorry to hear that. And uh, he was one month away from his 49th birthday. Hmm. And uh, he was diagnosed with amylo amyloidosis. And from the day of his diagnosis to the day he died, it was it was less than 15 days. Wow. Oh and gosh. once he once he was diagnosed, they were able to get him to the 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 uh, main treatment center in the St. Louis area uh, for the help that he needed. Mm -hmm. But he was gone. It took him fast. And the, these are these are the things. And and doc, and I can tell you. The doctors would rather run their own practices, but the insurance companies are telling them what to do with their practice. Yeah. Yeah. They're telling them they have to see X amount of patients per hour. And the doctor doesn't, doesn't get to really uh, get in, get in it with you. I know when I go for my annual physical, <clears throat> um, it's, it's, uh, it's just a boom, boom, boom moment. My doctor's not in the room with me too long. Uh, yeah. nurses handle everything, you know, it's those things and, and you, those things get through the crack. People put off treatment and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. So we do have a serious situation. So when we talk, when we talk about let's get Medicare for all, let's get the public option, let's get single payer. Those things are actually practical solutions to our current situation. So I'll just throw just example numbers out there. Just, just so people can, can kind of soak it in a little bit. So let's just say that right now your family plan with the subsidized, your subsidized family plan through your employer, you're paying $500 every payday, mm -hmm. which is a thousand dollars a month or $12,000 a year. Yeah. Yeah. Between, well, actually between me and my employer, that's almost right on the money in terms of yeah. the, the dollar amount. Yeah. And, and so, and then, but if you go to a Medicare for all or a single payer, yes, your taxes are going to have to go up for Medicare. That is true. But your tax may go up $250 a payday. Yeah. And you were paying $500 a payday. You just saved 50%. Yeah. You have $250 more in your pocket every payday. And guess what? Your employer also would pay into the single payer system as well for having employees. So your employer, instead of having to pay that big insurance premium that they were paying before, is now paying a much lower insurance premium. So guess what? Your employer now has more cash and so on and so on and so on. Well, they, they don't I, have to employ a lot of people to keep track of their health care yeah, system either because that's, that's a nightmare right. in itself. Yeah, That's right. Um, who was it? Um, I guess it would have been 2012 or 2014 former CEO of General Motors said that he got into, he, he went to General Motors to make cars. Mm -hmm. And in the final five years, when he was with General Motors, he spent more time either fixing problems with the current healthcare deal or negotiating the new healthcare deal yeah. than he ever did making cars. And he felt that it was time for him to go. No. So he stepped down. And I think that that statement was profound on its face. It, it's, we are at a tipping point. I get that people want to maintain capitalism, if you will. I understand that. I get it. You want to maintain capitalism. But there are some things that you got to 
you got you got to pull some of the profit out of. And the only the only group that's in healthcare that produces absolutely nothing other than an expense is the insurance company. Yeah. Everybody else is pulling their weight inside the healthcare system. Doctors are providing the service. Nurses providing the service. Hospitals providing the service. What does the insurance company provide? Administration. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. If we pull the insurance companies out of there. Now, the insurance companies themselves don't have to die. Because guess what? For a single-payer system, we're going to need management groups. Yeah. And those same insurance companies can make a bid to manage each state's independent system. But that's, you know, these are, these are real solutions and we've got to start talking about real solutions that, that involve governing because our Republican friends, they're not talking about governing. They're not talking about doing things that are going to help the American family, you know, allowing the $250 a month tax credit to expire. Again, I understand the concern with putting more money into the system. We have to ask the questions. Are prices really, did they really need to go up that high or is it an artificial increase? No, no. And if it's an artificial increase, why is it artificially high? What new expense did they incur? I understand the need to stave off scarcity. I get that. I understand those economic forces and things like that. I understand that because if you have scarcity, there's going to be a run on things that people think, I mean, we just look at the beginning of COVID, paper towels, uh, yeah, yeah. Kleenex, and toilet paper. Yeah. Couldn't find them on the shelves for about a month. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's rushing out buying it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah because there was a run on it. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've got to start being practical, and we've got to start really having discussions. I, I, don't, there's, I don't think there's a single argument a Democrat can successfully make on the culture wars that people – are going to listen to. I can acknowledge that I agree with people on certain things that they want to talk about on the culture wars, but in the end, the culture wars are subjective and they're subject to the person that's making the, the allegation or, uh, uh, talking, talking about the, the culture war itself. Yeah. It's subjective just to their opinion. Right. And, um, there, there may not be any real uh, um, substance right. behind their issues. None. No. Well, let's, let's pick on one right here because we, we talked about it at the top of the podcast. This is the Roe v. Wade thing. And, That's right. you know, uh, we should probably have this conversation a few months from now. But unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, a majority Supreme Court opinion was leaked to Politico. And this has set the world on fire talking about culture wars. And uh, there, there, there is an issue, a legitimate issue over, you know, where this leaked document came from. I understand that. But I am more concerned over the fact that here we have a Supreme Court. And as you mentioned earlier, it's it's limiting freedoms uh, in this particular decision rather than clarifying and expanding freedoms. And this is a dangerous precedent. Uh, abortion is an example. But, you know, people now are talking about this could easily slide down a slippery slope into LGBTQ rights. Uh, things like exogamy, uh, which is you know marriage outside a community or a clan or a tribe or whatever, uh, erosion of women's rights. Uh, it could probably even touch immigration. I don't know. And but here's the thing with just a, Justice Alito's opinion, which was published in Politico. 
uh, he's, he used this phrase rooted in the nation's history. And to quote him exactly, uh, this has been quoted all over the news lately, but I'll quote it again here. So you've probably already heard it. But what Alito said was, the inescapable conclusion is that a, a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. On the contrary, an unbroken tradition of prohibiting abortion on pain of criminal punishment persisted from the earliest days of common law until 1973. Well, <laughs> elsewhere in that document, the earliest days of common law, uh, he was referencing back to medieval times, basically. So, uh -huh. you know, by that context, you could argue that slavery should be reinstated uh, because it yep. is likewise rooted in the nation's history and in common law before our nation's history. It, and in general, the, the, the argument could be made about all of our liberties. They could just be unwound one at a time, citing this particular example. So what's, what's your take on that? You know, the, the, the logic that they're using, the, the gymnastics that they're using to accomplish the mission of the religious right mm -hmm. is a travesty. Each one of them said, each one of them, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Coney Barrett, all said that Roe is settled law. Right. In their confirmation hearing right. to the American people. So, so if they said Roe is settled law, is it impeachable? that they that they feel like they can overturn it now can they be impeached for overturning roe by in in lying to congress it's a good question a lot of people are talking about that yeah. there's there's one there's there's a question to ask uh but of course there's no political will to do so mm -hmm. and the folks on the right they won't impeach there's there's no there's no accountability so, yes, I am afraid that 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 very same logic that was used can be used to undo a lot of the fabric of America. Now, and, and, and I hate to I hate to go go to go to all this, but historically, you know, because I, I, I used to wonder why abortion became such a big deal. And ab abortion became a big deal, not because they believed in that abortion, because Prior to like 1975 or 1976, uh, a lot of the religious right was was prepared to defend a woman's right to choose, mm -hmm. but they needed some traction for what their real their real motivation was, and that was to end end desegregation. Yeah. I mean, there are article, there are historical articles that are written about this. The, they they grabbed a hold of it because it was a means by which they could undo. They needed to galvanize votes for their objective to undo desegregation. But because people had seen the atrocities that went on in our southern states with segregation and all the all the stuff that happened, people there was no appetite for what they were trying to sell. Mm -hmm. So they needed a boogeyman. And they found that boogeyman in abortion. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's been front and center for them for all these years. And you can just look right here in the state of Missouri. Look at what they're trying to do. They are trying to take public monies from our public school system and put it into private hands. Yes. I can tell you that statistically, 
charter schools typically fare no better or no worse than the public the public schools in the performance of their students. That's correct. I looked that up myself too. Yeah. There's there's no there's no significant difference. So mm -hmm. if there's no significant difference in the performance of a charter school to that of a public school, why do we continue to fund charter schools? The reason why the reason why you're trying to uh, uh, establish the charter school, at least so so you've you've said, is to improve the performance of students. Well, they're not. Right. So how long do you continue to fund them if they're not doing any better than the pub public schools you're already funding? Well, so there's there's that's, a, yeah, a whole lot to unra unravel about that because that's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah so yeah. There, and there's there's a there's a lot there's a lot to talk about there. Yeah. But yeah. we're not talking about that. We're not talking about those uh, those the pieces that are there because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Because it's easier to just say, well, we need to fund charter schools so people have choice. Uh, well, you have a choice. You you know, when my wife and I bought our bought our current home, you know, um, because I'm an educator, um, we looked at we looked at performance. We looked at the education performance in each school district in the Kansas city area. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we had narrowed down. We were either going to Lee summit park Hill Liberty. And those were, those were our top three mm -hmm. when we were settling on a home. And then, uh, when I took a job at North Kansas city or at uh, Winnetonka high school, uh, we expanded our search in the North Kansas City School District um, because when, when we looked at the performance of the district, we said, oh, that's where we, you know, our kids can go there and they're, they're going to get a quality education. So people can do that. They people can shop. Yeah, they can shop around for where they want to send their kids to school. And people will make that hustle to make that happen. And that's what I found. You know, we did. I've I've done it. Um, I'm not saying everybody can do it the way that I do it, but if you want your kids to go to a different school system, you can take your kids to a different school system. People do, people do their talking with their seat, feet in the Kansas city, Missouri school district left and right. Yeah. Kansas city, Missouri school district is at its lowest enrollment in, in the last 50 years. Hmm. There are more, there are more students enrolled in charter schools in the Kansas city, Missouri school district. And you're seeing districts all around Kansas city, Missouri school district grow uh you know most of the kids stay in kansas city, missouri school district k through five mm -hmm. but then their parents the ones that can they leave they go to a surrounding school district yeah but i think you're going to start to see that change now that kansas city's got its accreditation back and i and i and my hat's off to dr mark Burdell because he's done a great job uh turning that school district all the way around so uh that mm -hmm. that give them all the love in the world because I'm so proud of that district. They've, they've, they've done everything to come out. They've, they've overcome a lot. Uh, so there were a lot of, there are a lot of things, but if your money, if, if you're truly trying to do that, if your, your purpose is to truly uh, change, then you should be looking for something that works better. Yeah. If it doesn't work any better then you'd stop funding it. I mean, they they are constantly wanting to end all public assistance programs yeah. because they don't feel it does anything. Well, you have the you have the data. 
you're you're and, and you know what this is going to make this is going to make me an enemy of every charter school out there um but well it, it one one question i have though is is you you're the sixth district of missouri is as i mentioned at the top was largely rural and yes what sort of choices does somebody have if they're sitting you know in a in a in a rural district that's say outside of say St. Mary's or something like that up in the northwest corner of Missouri mm-hmm. and uh your school your public school may be say 5 miles away or whatever i'm just kind of throwing out a hypothetical there but mm-hmm. if if a charter school pops up somewhere down in Kansas City it's going to be taking money out of the state funds for the school that that that's local to you. You don't really have much of a choice, do you? I mean, you can't drive your kid, you know, hundred miles south no. to uh, into Kansas City every day, right? Well, that is true. But right now, there is a bill. There is a bill on the Missouri House floor to expand the footprint of charter schools to include rural districts. And what what people what people don't seem to realize is that some of these districts are running on shoestring budgets mm-hmm. uh, and due in large part to funding cuts that have been made at the state level over and over and over again mm-hmm. um, that, uh, you know, state legislators don't seem to be wanting to put the money back. Um, and so some districts have gone to four day, four day weeks. And, and there's lots of reasons why they've gone to four day weeks. I hosted a podcast in 2018 and I talked to a couple of superintendents that went to four day weeks and they said, initially they went to four day weeks because of money. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a couple of them said they kept the four day weeks because it was a perk that they could offer that they could, that, that they could offer that other districts couldn't uh, because of their size. And they, and so with that extra day off, uh, they were able to attract teachers that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to get there because they couldn't offer the salary that uh, the same salary mm-hmm. that you could get in a, in a Kansas city or an elite summit. Or so North that, that was city one of the perks of. basically is that the teachers yep. get one day a week off. Yep. So, so you, know. you, so you, you're off on Fridays cause you have a four day work week. So it, it was, it was just a perk. And that, that was, there was a, there were a couple of superintendents that that was their motivation for keeping it. Now, some, some superintendents say, say they're, they're only open for four days because of money. Yeah. And that may be true. But like I said, the ones I talked to, they said they kept it because they, they could afford to stay open. They kept it for the sole express purpose of it being a perk that they could offer hmm. uh, on their job. So uh, I never, I never heard that before. That that's a, a pretty good thing to consider, though, uh, because I would think a four-day week for school would put some stress on the parents, especially the parents that are working five-day weeks. Then that means that the parents have to have some sort of arrangement for the child on that uh, on Friday. On, that, on Friday, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of teenage girls that get a lot of get a lot of babysitting work <laughs> yeah, on that fifth right. day. Yeah, teenage girls, teenage boys that do the babysitting. They they make a nice little piece of change on that that last day of the week. <laughs> or families just families have uh, jobs that are flexible and they they may they move things around. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and that's just that's just a testament to the resiliency of American families and American industry. Yeah. Uh, they make the adaptations they need to, oftentimes for each other, so that they can be the most productive. Mm-hmm. 
so that, that's that's where I am. Okay. Now, it's um, we're kind of uh, running a little bit over time right here, but I did want to get one more question in on uh, uh, widening our scope to the to the international level right here. As I mentioned also at the top that there's this hot war now taking place between Ukraine and, and Russia, and this has flared up since our last conversation in, in last November. And to some degree, you know, Russia justifies this war based on the, their concern for their own security. Uh, historically, mm-hmm. they've been invaded multiple times over the past 200 years. And so that argument somewhat seems plausible. I get it because, you know, the, since the fall of the Soviet Union, NATO has been expanding its territory and nibbling around the edges of Russia. So I kind of see where they're going, you know, where they're coming from, uh, especially when like places like Poland and, and the Baltic states, I mean, that's right on Russia's doorstep there. And they see that as a threat. So it could be argued that Ukraine was a red line that could not be crossed. But this argument sort of loses its legitimacy in some circles because uh, Russia's been indiscriminately bombing civilians. And to me, that, that, that undermines that security argument. It looks more personal to me at this moment. Anyways, mm-hmm. should the U.S. continue to arm Ukraine and, and fight this sort of proxy war with Russia? And, and what risk does that pose, in your opinion? The bigger question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we truly, are we truly the defender of democracy? Mm-hmm. And if the answer to that question is yes, that we will defend democracy, then as long as our diplomatic sanctions are working and the Ukrainian people can fight their own war, we can continue to supply them with the armaments they need to fight their war. Mm-hmm. That's period. Do that. Um, okay. We also have to have a, a serious conversation about what if Russia, Russia edu- or escalates this war to the point where it ends up activating section five of the NATO treaty. Right. And so we have to be prepared as a nation to have that conversation and be ready to get ready to do what it takes to defend uh, uh, our partners, our NATO partners. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to, I want to reiterate something about NATO. NATO is not an offensive force. It is a force intended for defense only mm-hmm. period. So NATO was never going to cross into Russian soil under any pretense to take Russian ground. Right. I think the days of um, imperialism, I think it's time for us to get into another mindset and get into a mindset of cooperation instead of domination. Yeah. Because we can do so much more if we're cooperating around the world than we can if we're thinking about it in terms of we've got to outpace that guy yeah, because that guy's dangerous to us. And here's the thing. I think every nation's leaders is trying to do the best for their people that they can with a few exceptions. Yeah. Um, so we have to recognize that leaders are trying to do the best for their people as our leaders are trying to do the best for our people. And so just because something looks uncomfortable doesn't mean 
that they intended to slight us out of anything. Mm -hmm. They just tried to get the best deal for their people. And, and that's something that we, we have, I, I, I get the, the, the alarmist rhetoric and the, the uh, call to action rhetoric that I hear that I see on TV. I, I read in newspapers. These nations are not our enemies directly. Mm-hmm. They are our economic competitors, but they're not our enemies. You know, no matter how you slice the slice the pie, China's not really our enemy. They're not trying to take over the United States. At least last I thought, last I read anything, I didn't right. see anything or hear anything. We just have to look at it from a from an economic standpoint, and everybody's trying to do the best they can for their people. And so, if we focus if we focus our energies on doing the best we can for our people, and focus on cooperating in the world. You know, we we might find that we don't need as many ships, we don't need as many tanks, and we don't need as people, many people to operate those ships and tanks, so we can save our country billions and billions of dollars. Oh yeah, we run. have an eight hundred billion dollar a year yeah. uh, budget for the military. Well, yeah. uh, to that end, though, I mean, it's and, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, so just keep that mm-hmm. in mind that uh, NATO was really formed. In, in the wake of World War II, when the Warsaw yep. Pact nations were formed, so we had, you know, the Cold War yep. literally started before World War II was over. And mm-hmm. so the Soviet Union falls, and suddenly NATO is still there. And it's not the fact that they're recruiting more countries going into Poland and, like I say, the Baltic states uh, and so on. Uh, but it also is the fact that we're putting military bases and missiles in those countries as well. Yep. You got to think, you know, it's um, I have no sympathy for Putin. OK, I want to make that clear. But you got to think that when he's looking at this equation here and he's looking down the barrel of these missiles, uh, you know, he, w- how would we feel if he stuck some missiles in you know, Mexico or, or put them back in Cuba or something like that? It's a it's a threat. And, yeah, we can say all we want that NATO is a purely defensive force, but uh, it looks quite different when the missiles are pointed in your direction. Yep, that's my point. Mm-hmm. We've got to get back to NATO's roots as a defense force. And we've got to stop looking at everybody as an enemy. Mm-hmm. Because they're not. They're trying to do the best for their people. And if we if we go go into it with a diplomatic means like that, it's a lot easier to try and get people to maneuver around and get better deals for mm-hmm. the for our people. If we're not going in trying to trying to slight slight somebody out of their their best deal for their people, so I get it. Everybody wants to have that great deal, you know. That's kind of the appeal of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. He's a deal maker. He'll yeah. make great deals for the United States. Is the overarching uh, uh, conversation. Right. But the reality is, his idea of a great deal is he just doesn't pay the person that's doing the work for him. <laughs> He's a great deal for Donald Trump, not for anybody yeah, else. It's a, it's, it's, a yeah. great, it's a great deal for, for him, but it's not a great deal for the people that, that needed a good deal. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's, what, that's what we're talking about. That's what we need to focus on. Um, okay. I get it. I don't, want, I, don't, I don't think we should be put, uh, putting new bases in, in places and putting missiles in. Because then we're losing the we're losing the look of a defense force. Yeah. Now we're looking like an offensive force. Right. And you know, so I so I like I said, I, I'm I'm all for 
doing smart things that do that do good things for everybody. Uh, the NATO alliance needs to focus on defense. Period. Yeah. Period. Okay. And anything that looks like offense, we need to get rid of it. Fair enough. I, I think that um, you know I, I listen to Ralph Nader quite a bit, and uh, I know he he would. I, I can just hear his voice in the back of my head saying. But you have this military-industrial complex that wants these countries to go into NATO because then we demand that they spend 2% of their GDP on buying uh, war machines. And, mm-hmm. and so now, right, so when a, when a country like, let's say, Lithuania joined uh, NATO, I think, I don't remember when they actually they joined NATO, but, but then it became incumbent upon them to buy a lot of our hardware. And what are they going to do with it? They're going to deploy it. They're going to put it on, you know— you can't be anywhere in Lithuania and not be close to Russia, right? So uh, yep. that's it's it's gonna it uh, that's a that's a big ask though. When you try to get NATO to shift gears like that, I would think you're going to be fighting a lot of people. Uh, I believe the principle is correct, though. I believe you got the right idea. It's just going to be really hard to pull that one off. I would think. Yep. Yeah. You got we got our hands full, and that's yeah. that's uh, that's it. Foreign foreign policy is what it is. We just we have to turn turn these. Uh, turn this stuff off of everybody's our enemy and yeah. we had to start talking about how we can be the best global partner. Yeah. Period. Yeah. That that's And uh, uh I know I know people yeah. people may look at that as as being quote unquote soft, but it's not being soft. It's being practical and getting the best deal for the American worker. Yeah. Um I I uh you know, we can we can argue uh the nuance of certain things and why we pay, why we buy this from that country and this, that from that country, you know, people don't, people don't realize that uh, sometimes it's best to make something somewhere else because they have the, they have the natural resource in that area to do that very thing. Yeah. yeah. And that natural resource is a, is a big deal. Well, you got to make it a win-win resource. situation too. So everybody right. gets something out of the deal. Yeah. That's right. Right. Okay, well, I think we're running out of time here. I just want to ask one final question is where can people go to support your efforts on the path to the U.S. Congress? Well, stop by henrymartinforcongress.com. There you can look over all of my all the main issues on my platform. Uh, if you got a question, leave leave one there. Uh, there and you can always leave some money uh, through any one of the <laughs> Act Blue links on the page. Okay. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at HM for Congress. And uh, like us on Facebook at uh, Henry Martin for Congress. Um, you okay. know, like and follow me on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, we, I try we try and get some keep content up there pretty fresh. Uh, like I said, we we put the piece up today uh, talking about uh, the the abortion situation. Yeah. Uh, because this is this is an unfortunate state of affair, affairs in the United States right yeah. now. Yeah. And I truly hope I truly hope that preliminary opinion was just that was preliminary and uh, they will uh, side on, they will err on the side of uh, protecting uh, what is what they have all said is settled law yeah good okay that's Henry Martin for Congress and that's all one word Henry Martin for Congress and it's not the number four it's for so Henry Martin for congress.com we've been talking with Henry Martin Democratic candidate for US Congress district 6 in Missouri Henry thank you for joining us today on democracy on the move we'd love to have you back again like you were last November maybe you can talk to you again um, after next November or maybe even sooner okay. than that uh, absolutely thanks Dan lots of good luck and success in your campaign for the US Congress righty.
You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor your future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.